You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that Yahweh, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. Your eyes have seen what Yahweh did at Baal Peor. For Yahweh your God destroyed from among you all the men who followed the Baal of Peor. But you who held fast to Yahweh your God are all alive today. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as Yahweh my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us, whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children, and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before Yahweh your God at Horeb, Yahweh said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near, and stood at the foot of the mountain, while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom. Then Yahweh spoke to you out of the midst of the fire, You heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice, and he declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And Yahweh commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that Yahweh spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that Yahweh your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But Yahweh has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance, as you are this day. Furthermore, Yahweh was angry with me because of you. And he swore that I should not cross the Jordan and that I should not enter the good land that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, for I must die in this land. I must not go over the Jordan, but you shall go over and take possession of that good land. Take care, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, 
which he made with you, and make a carved image, the form of anything that Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it but will be utterly destroyed, and Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands, that neither see, nor hear, nor eat, nor smell, and from there you will seek Yahweh your God, and you will find him, if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to Yahweh your God and obey his voice, for Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. To you it was shown that you might know that Yahweh is God. There is no other besides him. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice, that he might discipline you. And on earth he let you see his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you, to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance, as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that Yahweh is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. Therefore, you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land that Yahweh your God is giving you for all time. Then Moses set apart three cities in the east, beyond the Jordan, that the manslayer may flee there, anyone who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without being at enmity with him in time past, he may flee to one of those cities and save his life. Bezer in the wilderness, on the tableland, for the Reubenites. Ramoth in Gilead, for the Gadites. And Golan in Bashan, for the Manasites. This is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. These are the testimonies, the statutes, and the rules, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt, beyond the Jordan, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, in the land of Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon, whom Moses and the people of Israel 
defeated when they came out of Egypt. And they took possession of his land and the land of Og, the king of Bashan, the two kings of the Amorites who lived to the east beyond the Jordan, from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, as far as Mount Sirion, that is Hermon, together with all the Arabah on the east side of the Jordan, as far as the Sea of the Arabah under the slopes of Pisgah. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 651 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, July 1st, 2023, and that was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses commands obedience, idolatry is forbidden, only Yahweh is God. Then we have the setup of the cities of refuge, and you have an introduction to the law. Now, what's the problem, right? What is the problem that the people of Israel have right here, right now, at this point in the narrative? Again, remember, Deuteronomy is something of a retelling. It's a telling of what has happened to this point in different terms, in different language, in something of a more abbreviated version along certain lines. But what's the problem as Moses is reminding the people of Israel as they're just about to go in to take possession of this land that God has promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What is the problem? The problem is that they very often disobey or that they lose faith or that they grumble against God. The problem is one of sin, in short. The problem is disobedience. The problem is sin that puts them at enmity with God. But what's the solution? Well, in some sense, the solution is obedience. But then what's actually upstream of obedience? What is the precursor to obedience? Well, this might surprise a lot of people who don't like that word. They don't like being told to obey anybody. They don't like being commanded. They don't like being ordered about. They don't like being prohibited from certain things or told they have to do certain other things. What's upstream of obedience to God? It is love for God. Jesus is asked in the gospel accounts, what is the greatest commandment? And it's supposed to be something of a gotcha question to make him look awkward. It's supposed to be an entrapping question. It's supposed to be a, aha, yeah, let's see what he comes up with here. Maybe We can make him look like an idiot in front of the people who keep coming out to hear him preach and teach and who keep coming out to be healed and forgiven and have demons exercised or they come out to watch him do those things for other people. Let's see if we can make him look like an idiot for people we don't want 
to be influenced by him anymore. We want to be the ones influencing those people, and we resent and we're jealous of the fact that he teaches as one with authority unlike us. And so the question is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second greatest commandment is like the first, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus rightly surmises, rightly summarizes, these two sum up all the law and the prophets. And so what we have to understand as Moses is reminding the people of Israel how they got to now, how they got to this point, what their context is, as they're just about to go in and take possession of this land, this good land that was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, what is really being drawn out here is that they are not always lovers of God. They have commands, they have promises, they have a mission, they have objectives, they have purpose, they have belonging to God. And they have a purpose to do what God has called them to do, what God has prepared them to do, what God is commanding them to do. What breaks down when they disobey is their love for God. And this is a constant. This is a constant theme. The love for God grows cold. The love for one another grows cold. And men become lovers of pleasure instead, lovers of themselves instead. In some sense, you could say, when Jesus tells those who say to him, Lord, Lord, on the last day, depart from me, I never knew you. Workers of lawlessness, depart from me, I never knew you. What he's really telling them is, you workers of lovelessness, you don't love me. You never loved me. That was all for you. You did it all for yourself. It was selfish. It was because you loved the pleasure that you got from other people seeing you pretend to be a lover of God. You loved the pleasure and the acclaim, and this false piety did not impress me. It didn't please me at all, because it was all about you. All these mighty works that you did, supposedly in my name, Jesus is basically saying they don't count for anything, very much along the lines of what Paul says to the church at Corinth. If I have faith to move mountains, but have not love. If I understand all mysteries, but have not love. If I speak with the tongues of angels and of men, but have not love. What does he say again and again? If I give all that I have to the poor, if I give my body up to be burned in the fire, which is to say, if I die a martyr's death, but have not love. All of these things that Paul lists in his letter to Corinth, he says they're worthless, they're meaningless, they don't matter their vanity if they're not motivated by love. And so also, what we need to understand is when we take all this together, Old Testament, New Testament, what is really being described as the problem to this point and the future problem, which will reoccur for the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what is really the problem is a failure to love God appropriately to love what is good from God appropriately, to love the truth appropriately, to love what is beautiful that God has promised and would give to us as an inheritance, a failure to love relationship with one another, to love one another as we ought to. That failure to love is upstream of the failure to obey. 
And there's more to it. You can get more detailed on certain aspects if you want to, by all means. But at root, when Jesus says these two sum up all the law and the prophets, what he's really telling us to do is, if we missed it, go back and look at all of the commands of God, look at all of the law of God through the lens of God teaching us, telling us how to love him. Jesus says at a certain point in the Gospels, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He says elsewhere, when he gives the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. Yep, we've got that. We understand that. We like the going. We like the making. We like the part that this is us doing something. But then, you know, all of that, right? All of that going and doing can be self-aggrandizing. It can be, look at me, look at me. It can come from a place of false piety. It can come from a place of self-serving, unfortunately. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that also, right? That also can come from a place of false piety, selfishness, giving like the Pharisees gave, announcing it with tambourines and trumpets, praying on street corners, equivalents, to be seen by men, to be thought well of by men. But Paul also says at a certain point, He's glad that he didn't baptize more of you because what is this that he's hearing about? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Saints are bickering and arguing about whose gospel they follow or adhere to or who baptized them. And Paul says, I'm glad I didn't baptize more of you because this is not of God. We are just servants through whom you believed. We are just servants. But Jesus says also, Not just go and make disciples, not just baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so there's this idea of command and obedience in the New Testament as well, in the New Covenant as well. It's not just the Old Testament. It is also for today that God commands and we obey. You don't just let go and let God. That's not sign of true faith, and love for God. We have to be careful in this day and age in particular that we are not only taking note of the declarative aspect of sanctification. In Christ, yes, we are declared righteous, and that's great. Yes, that declarative is important to remember, lest we become discouraged, lest we think it's all just our effort. But if you only think of. You only talk about the declarative and you don't talk about the imperative. You don't talk about the implications. Since I believe, since I am declared righteous, therefore I get to, I have the opportunity to, I have the privilege, I have the honor, I have the great blessing to obey God. If we never move on to the imperative consequences of the declarative having been declared righteous, then Can that kind of faith save, as James asks? Can that kind of faith save? Or is it just like saying there is one God? Elsewhere we read, even the demons believe and shudder. You do well. You believe that there's one God? You do well. That's good. That's great. Even the demons believe that there's one God, and they shudder. It's not going to save the demons that they believe there is one God. Can that kind of faith save that just tells abstract truths and trivia and says, I believe this 
as distinct from what those others over there believe. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Can that kind of faith save? And here in Deuteronomy 4, you have Moses basically essentially telling Israel, again, for one, it's your fault that I am not going into this promised land. You can tell this really bothers him. Understandably so. It really bothers him. He was angry at me. God was angry at me because of you. But you are going to go in. Let me warn you. I call heaven and earth to stand as witnesses against you if you, in your old age, become corrupt and you behave like the nations that are being driven out. I call them as witnesses against you that you will lose this land and you will be driven abroad. And so even just right here, right here in the beginnings of them going in to possess the land is a kind of expectation that this is not going to be forever. You guys are going to fail. In some sense, this is prophetic, even as it's a kind of realism. You don't have to be able to see the future to be able to realistically predict that at a certain point, generations are going to come and go, and either you or your children or your grandchildren or some future generations are going to turn away from God just like your fathers did and were punished for it. But even then, God is not going to forget you. You will be carried to the ends of the earth, but even there, God is not going to abandon you. He won't forsake you. He won't forget you. And when you call on Yahweh your God in captivity, in exile, in foreign lands, he will hear you. This is ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament. And in the intervening period between when God gives the kingdoms of Israel and Judah over to their enemies for conquest, for captivity, they are carried abroad or they're driven abroad. When Jesus is incarnate in the gospel accounts and then calls his 12 disciples and sends them only into the cities and towns of Israel and then he's arrested on false charges, flogged, crucified, dies, is buried, rises again on the third day. After that, and after the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, then, then they start to go out into the broader world and to preach the gospel, preach the good news, preach the evangelion, the news of the conquest of this king over sin and death to the nations, to the Gentiles. Everywhere they're spread, so also the message is spread. And it's still spreading today. But we have to take care. We have to understand that being under grace in Christ is not instead of obeying. It's not in place of obeying, as though you say, I'm under grace, and therefore, I don't have to do anything, God says. Take care. Take care. That's not indicative of the kind of faith that saves. You're not saved by works, but by golly, there should be fruit in keeping with repentance, and you should bear it. And if you're not, then other people should be able to say, hey, you know, I have concerns. I have concerns, and I want to talk with you about how you're relating to God, how you're relating to other people. And if people are coming into our lives and they're saying those kinds of things and they're saying, 
Here's what the word says and here's what you're doing. Here's what the word says and here's what you're saying. Here's what the word says and here's what I'm observing in your life. And we say, get out of here with that. I'm under grace. I don't need to listen to this. We should take care because we could be, if we're in that condition, we could be among those who are going to be told, depart from me, I never knew you. That's not where we want to be. It's just not where we want to be. We want to be those who hear, well done, good and faithful servant, in light of the declarative with regards to sanctification, as we, by God's grace, imperfectly, yes, but persistently work out the imperatives, the consequences. And we see here, introduction to the law. Here is the context. Let's recap what happened on the last season of... (laughs) God bringing his people Israel out of bondage in Egypt. It's interesting too, the way that Egypt is described, the terms are very evocative. The terms by which Moses describes that bondage in Egypt that God delivered Israel out of, they are very striking. Moses calls it a iron furnace. Egypt is likened to an iron furnace that Yahweh took them out of, brought them out of, to be a people of his own inheritance. This idea, by the way, that Israel is his inheritance is important in relation to them also reflecting that and having their own inheritance. So God takes this people for his inheritance. He becomes their inheritance, but then also there are material effects that are their inheritance because of the blessings of God. The promises are their inheritance. Yes, the relationship with God is their inheritance, but this land is their inheritance. The law is their inheritance. And the law is there to teach them how to love God and how to love one another and what to do when there is sin. Because there is sin, but when there is sin in them, that is breaking the relationship with their God and with one another. So it's going to be good. It's going to be good for us to go through Deuteronomy. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, the first four books of the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning first five books. We are now in the fifth of those first five books, the books of Moses, the books of the law. We're now in the fifth of five here on the first day of July, 2023. And I'm looking forward to going through the rest of Deuteronomy after this point. There's a lot of exciting stuff. If you're not familiar with the Old Testament, I think you're going to get a lot out of it. It doesn't get as much play today as it really should. And so stay tuned for future episodes as we make our way through the Old Testament in the build-up to the incarnation of God the Son, in the person of Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach. But for this episode, we are also going to be talking about affirmative action, and more specifically, the Supreme Court decision this week striking down affirmative action policies in American colleges and universities. Let's start off, we've got several articles to get through, but we'll start with Joel Abbott's post over at Not The Bee from June 29th, the day before yesterday. 
check out the New York Times response to affirmative action being overturned. And here we've got a clown emoji because this is ridiculous. Here's the tweet from the New York Times, and I quote, Breaking news, the Supreme Court rejected affirmative action at Harvard and UNC. The major ruling curtails race-conscious college admissions in the U.S., all but ensuring that elite institutions become whiter and more Asian and less black and Latino. (laughs) Oh, what a tweet, indeed. Here are some other tweets just so you don't have to be stuck with the New York Times is the only impression here. Greg, at Harmful Opinion, quote, In summary, the New York Times explicitly believes that the only way non-whites can achieve a Harvard education is if they are given preferential treatment and access. End quote. Robin Zaruba, quote, Racism looks good on you, gray lady. End quote. Greg Price, this is at Greg underscore Price 11, quote, How insane did Harvard's affirmative action policies get? An African-American student in the 40th percentile of their academic index is more likely to get it, I think he probably meant get in, than an Asian student in the 100th percentile. That's pretty bad. That's pretty bad. Harvard's preferences for underrepresented minorities. Here's a screenshot here. Harvard's admission data revealed astonishing racial disparities in admission rates among similarly qualified applicants. SFFA's expert testified that applicants with the same academic index, a metric created by Harvard based on test scores and GPA, had widely different admission rates by race, which is to say, which is to say that Harvard's admissions policies were explicitly discriminatory and prejudicial. If the problem at root is racial discrimination and judging people based on the content of their skin color, not the content of their character, if the problem is racial discrimination, then the Supreme Court was absolutely right. The the Supreme Court was absolutely right to strike this down and say, no, you can't do that. That's against the law. That's illegal. Somehow the left has gotten it in their heads that racial discrimination is okay if you're discriminating against white Americans and Asian Americans. It's okay so long as black Americans and Latino Americans come out more even, more equal. But this is radical egalitarianism. This is socialism. This is legal plunder, as Bastiat would say. It's an excuse, essentially, to pick winners and losers and to try and redistribute all kinds of wealth that stem from, flow from our downstream of admission into prestigious universities, which are less and less prestigious, you have to admit, less and less prestigious. And by the way, let me just remark that there being explicitly discriminatory policies that would be biased against, say, for instance, Asian Americans with perfect scores or white Americans, especially straight white men, that for someone growing up, you know, born 1986, growing up in the 90s, in high school, in the early 2000s, for me to know that, generally speaking, to observe that increasingly as I've gotten older and been in the working world, to recognize that the goal is diversity, not excellence, 
when I realize that I check all of the boxes just about for being discriminated against legally, according to the left, when the left happens to dominate the major institutions of academia, corporate boards, investment firms, the news media, it's hugely demotivating to play on these ball fields. It's very discouraging for someone who would otherwise pursue excellence because it's like, oh, well, it's not going to matter though, right? It doesn't matter how excellent, it doesn't matter how excellent I prove to be. So I'm just not even going to play that game. I'm going to go do something that I know is good, regardless of whether it shows up on their testing, regardless of whether they would give me credit if it showed up that I had perfect scores. And it's a funny thing. So having been homeschooled growing up, this was a major point of frustration and disillusionment for me when I realized that it didn't matter actually how high I tested, how high I scored as a homeschooler. And actually at a certain point, it was a liability because those I was beating out who had been public schooled we're going to resent me all the more and look for other things, right? Look for other things to even the playing field because they're being raised to be socialized. See also socialism to be made into little socialists. They would look for ways to knock me down to size. If I was better read than they, they would look for ways to discount or completely dismiss the value of book learning. If I were better spoken and a better writer, a better communicator, a better debater than they, they would look for ways to turn it into actually a liability instead of an asset. If I had good judgment and if I knew what I was talking about and if I were making some great insights and observations available to them rather than availing themselves of those, what I found in my early 20s, in my late teens, was it actually would go worse for me based on the way that the left has rigged the game for leftist ideas to win. Because I'm a straight white male, even just socially and professionally, the deck is stacked against me. Not just Harvard admissions work this way, but so much else that's organized and engineered along the same lines, along the same paradigm as the Harvard admission standards, guidelines, principles. Going back to Joel Abbott's post over at Not The Bee, here he's got a quote from Ibram X. Kendi from How To Be An Anti-Racist, quote, the only remedy to past discrimination is present discrimination. The only remedy to present discrimination is future discrimination. So essentially what you have among the anti-racist so-called racists is a blank check that they've written for themselves And it's not just with regards to race. This is one metric, but then it's also with regards to sexual orientation. It's also with regards to gender. It's also with regards to religious affiliation, political affiliation. If they have convinced themselves that I check all of the boxes of an oppressor or a supposed member of the most oppressive class in American history, essentially what the left has done with the full weight and power of all these institutions that the left has captured over the last several decades, what the left has done is they've written themselves a blank check to shut me up online, 
to suppress my reach in the public square, to lock me out of consideration for certain jobs. Essentially, what the left has done is given themselves moral sanction to oppress me because that's what Ibram X. Kendi is saying is the solution. You got to make it even. So all of the awful, ugly things, you, what you have to understand is all of the awful, ugly things that they say happened throughout history and were directed towards people of color or women or so-called sexual minorities or people who were not Christians, all of the awful, horrible things that you read about, for instance, in Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, the worst things they can think of or which they have been told happened and therefore characterize not the exception, but the rule of how people of color, women, sexual minorities, non-Christians were treated. They believe those things are good to do to you. If you check the boxes for the so-called oppressor classes. So the left in this instance has just suffered a major defeat. This is a major blow against the left's larger program. It's not the last battle, but it's a major battle that's been written about, debated about, complained about for decades in the U.S. This idea of giving preferential treatment to certain races and discounting the accomplishments of people who hail from other races in the name of so-called justice. This is why we need God to tell us how to love one another, and how to love him. Because if we don't have God giving us the law and God giving us the definition of justice, what you get is frauds and highwaymen trying to enact legal plunder by hijacking the legal institutions, hijacking the bureaucracies, hijacking the administrations of schools and the boards of corporations, Apart from God telling us what justice is, what we will come up with again and again is very clever excuses for defrauding one another, for abusing and destroying and consuming one another. May Reed Elordi also covers this story, though, over at The Daily Wire. Advocates hail SCOTUS decision scrapping affirmative action in college admissions. So a little bit more on the backstory here. The Supreme Court ruled against Harvard University and the University of North Carolina's affirmative action policies in a decision that will have a profound effect on the admissions processes at universities across the country. Quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. End quote. Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in the opinion for the majority. A group called Students for Fair Admissions had sued the elite schools, accusing them of unfairly factoring race into their admissions processes. The group pointed to the high test scores of Asian American and white applicants who were rejected. Students for Fair Admissions celebrated their win Thursday with the group's founder, Edward Blum, saying the decision, quote, marks the beginning of the restoration of the colorblind legal covenant that binds together our multiracial, multiethnic nation, end quote. Kenny Zhu The author of School of Woke, an upcoming book on critical race theory in K-12 education, said the affirmative action issue is vital for Americans, quote, because it reflects the sense of justice that we want to instill in our children and our children's children. Justice should be about merit, not the color of your skin, end quote. Zhu 
the son of Chinese immigrants, previously successfully lobbied the University of North Carolina to abolish its DEI hiring and promotion requirements. Zhu slammed Harvard's, quote, invidious personality score, which they used to viciously attack Asian applicants and smear their accomplishment, end quote. Quote, of course, because Harvard is populated with woke ideologues who lack a grasp of objective merit, they will fight back and further campaigns will be needed to quell their noncompliance, but a positive decision will give us legal precedent to do what we need to do to restore colorblind treatment of individuals, end quote, Zhu told the Daily Wire prior to the court's decision. Dr. Lance Izumi, director of the Pacific Research Institute's Center for Education, hailed the court's decision as a step in the right direction, quote, this decision underscores that constitutional rights adhere to all Americans and cannot be ignored even for good intentions. Harvard and UNC used subjective factors like personality traits to stereotype Asians and discriminate against them in the admissions process, despite Asian applicants having the highest objective academic ratings. Asian Americans, as the Supreme Court emphasized, are not just a generic group, but come from a huge range of diverse cultures, end quote. Now, let me take a step back here and let me just point out that if you read John Taylor Gatto, he talks about this a while back, years and years ago. He's since passed, but he talked about this years ago in his fantastic critique of American public education. And he talks about in his lectures and in his books, like Weapons of Mass Instruction, great book. I've done a review on it. If you want to go back and check that out. John Taylor Gatto talks about these elite colleges and universities in the U.S. pursuing essentially the eugenics program. They are social engineering and they are trying to get not just the smartest, the people with the best academic scores, but they're trying to get best in breed, essentially. They want people who look like what they want America to be, not who look like America. And it's not based on merit. It's advertised as being based on merit, but then they come up with additional metrics. As Izumi is attesting, they come up with additional metrics. As Zhu is attesting to exclude people they don't like, people that they don't want more of. If the statistics don't bear out their claims of unfair discrimination, if the statistics actually bear out that there is a very strong cultural component that factors into how many young people from certain groups are going to be successful. Well, they don't want to talk about that. They want it all to be racism. And they want to give themselves a free hand to correct supposed oppression, supposed injustice. But what if a lot of this has to do with cultural values? So if Asian Americans test so much better than everybody else, statistically, no, let's not talk about cultural values that are common to Asian Americans. Coming here to America for opportunity to enjoy the fruits of their labors more holistically because they want political stability, because they want political freedom, because they want economic freedom. Let's not talk about the cultural values of parents and grandparents urging their children and grandchildren to study hard, to work hard, to pursue excellence, and how that produces more often children and grandchildren who actually excel. Let's not talk about grandparents and parents staying married and multi-generational families that all come together 
to nurture and cultivate excellence in their next generations. Let's not talk about that leading to very, very different outcomes statistically any more than you would talk about, oh, say, for instance, the statistics with regards to home education. It's so dangerous for the leftist program, for the socialistic program, to start talking about cultural values and individual choices adding up to differences across cultures, differences in outcomes, despite equal opportunity. Equality of opportunity is what we should be demanding. That is justice. Equal protection of the laws. That's what justice requires. That's what God requires in his law. That's what our laws also should require and protect. Equality of outcome is what the socialists demand. And very often, like Saul Alinsky, community organizing, they come into communities and make the claim that they know will be divisive, and they make it because it will be divisive, and because the more two different factions form and get angry with each other, the easier a time it will be for the community organizer who started the whole thing to then take leadership over one of those factions. And now they've got a mandate to pursue what they really wanted, which is not, first and foremost, to deliver for this whole community that supposedly has been oppressed. What they really want, these community organizers like Saul Alinsky, like Barack Obama after him, what they really want is political power, the right, the ability, the freedom, the opportunity to write the laws so as to sanction the plundering of those who have, regardless of whether they earned it. Because the socialist will never run out of excuses and rationalizations for plundering those who have to give to themselves and to those who supposedly have not because they've been oppressed. Because, oh, you know, the person who has took it from them. You know, if I grew up poor, but homeschooling, I was reading a lot. I was going to museums. I was going to zoos. I was going to historical sites. I was insatiably interested in learning more, growing, understanding. I was enthusiastic about making connections and understanding. If I, growing up poor, a poor white youth in America, if I was doing better statistically than my public school peers, what could the left's program not tolerate? My doing much better than the products of public education. And so the left has to come up with excuses to shut me up when I podcast. The left has to come up with excuses to shut me up when I blog. The left has to come up with excuses to suppress the reach of my voice. The left very easily creates this mind trap that infects HR departments and the hiring decisions of managers and the decision to promote or not to give raises or not. I've heard it too many times in my career. Oh, well, so-and-so is upset that you have such and such and they don't. Oh, I'm sorry. Did they earn it? Do they need it? Do they deserve it? Would it not be helpful for me to actually do the job better? Well, it doesn't matter, right? It doesn't matter in a socialistic mindset. All that matters in a socialistic mindset is you have it and they want it. They don't have it but you do. So we have to take it away from you. Even if we don't give them one too, we have to take it from you so that everybody has the same, because the last thing we would want is anybody to be complaining that they don't have what they want. This affirmative action 
ruling by the Supreme Court is excellent. This is fantastic because it'll do a couple of things. One, it'll take the boot off of the neck of Asian Americans and white Americans who have been trying to pursue excellence. And it can't stop at college admissions and university admissions decisions. It has to extend and ripple out. And it might take a minute, but it has to ripple out into hiring and firing and promotion decisions at corporations as well. It has to apply also to DEI initiatives. It has to in the interest of consistency. And that will mean that our schools are better. It will mean that our companies and therefore our economy is stronger. It doesn't bother me one little bit if Asian Americans statistically do better on their test scores or in their GPAs than I did. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all if Asian Americans statistically make more money than I do. Although, actually, funny thing is, I, without having graduated with a bachelor's degree, much less a master's degree, statistically make what the average Asian American with a master's degree earns. Fun fact. Fun fact. I've looked it up. It's been maybe a year or two, but true story. So I'm, I must be doing okay, right? I must be doing okay. But then it begs the question, when you look at this and you see the Supreme Court hand down a ruling and you feel this palpable relief, it feels something like an iron furnace being called into question. An oppressive system that is designed to water down the accomplishments or the merit of certain groups, which I happen to belong to one of those two groups. I'm a white American. But I therefore also empathize with Asian Americans. If Asian Americans are going to work harder than I'm going to work, if they're going to pursue excellence, if they're going to get results, if they're going to do a really, really good job carrying the American ideal forward and making strong companies, running strong companies, if they're going to have strong families, and if they're willing to affirm the American idea from its founding, then I say, we're all the better for their not being watered down. If I am going to pursue excellence, we are all the better for my not being suppressed and censored. We all win if excellence and merit are rewarded, because what will we get more of in that case? We will get more excellence. We will get more merit. It might not be an overnight thing, but it might produce some real tangible benefits for all of us much sooner than we would think. Because however you want to believe America has advanced and progressed and developed and how much better we are off than our ancestors 100 years ago, thanks to advances in technology, however much you think we have progressed, just imagine if you can how much more we would have enjoyed the fruits of our labors if not for leftist, socialist, social engineering, taking the cream off of the top year over year, decade over decade, how much better will it be if we can get the left to stop with the legal plunder? How much better will it be when, if, Lord willing, we can get them to stop engaging in the spoil system, 
where they give to those who vote for them or those who agitate for them, those who mau-mau their political opponents for them. They give largesse as a reward for those who help them to destroy whoever stands between them and legal plunder. How much better will we all have it, including them, if they'll knock it off, if they'll get some sense, if the cream is not continually being scraped off the top and thrown out the back door because there are quotas to reach. On a lighter note, (laughs) the Babylon Bee has picked up this story and the result is pure magic. It is just very funny. Awkward. Supreme Court rules against affirmative action with affirmative action hire sitting right there. And there's a picture of Katanji Brown Jackson looking peeved from her Senate confirmation hearing. Probably the moment that Marsha Blackburn, senator from Tennessee, was asking her if she could define what a woman is because that is relevant in our day. It shouldn't be, but it is. Quote, in an extremely awkward moment, six Supreme Court justices ruled that affirmative action is unconstitutional, completely forgetting that affirmative action hire Katanji Brown-Jackson was sitting right there next to them. Quote, Welp, this is kind of an uncomfortable situation, said Chief Justice John Roberts after turning in his majority opinion. Quote, no hard feelings, okay, Katanji? We're still invited to the cookout at your place this weekend, right? End quote. Roberts then slunk away with an embarrassed look on his face. Quote, today is a sad day for anyone who was hired strictly based on their race, gender, and sexual orientation rather than qualifications, said White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, who was hired strictly based on her race, gender, and sexual orientation rather than qualifications. Quote, ah, crap. Now this is awkward. End quote. Vice President Kamala Harris, also an identity hire with no qualifications, weighed in as well, saying, Quote, affirmative action is affirmative, and that's good. Without affirmative action, we will have non-affirmative action, which is the worst kind of action, and that's bad. <laughs> End quote. At publishing time, Clarence Thomas had distracted himself from his awkward feeling by writing yet another brilliant opinion. And speaking of, back to the Daily Wire. Daily Wire News reports the day before yesterday. Clarence Thomas blasts Katanji Brown-Jackson's racist worldview, cancerous to young minds. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas issued a blistering response to Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson's racist worldview in a lengthy concurrence with the court's overwhelming 6-3 to three ruling that race-based admissions programs at Harvard violated Title Six of the Civil Rights Act and the University of North Carolina violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Quote, eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it, end quote. Jackson complained in her dissent that the ruling makes things worse for minorities because race still matters to the lived experiences of all Americans in innumerable ways. Quote, with let them eat cake obliviousness today, the majority pulls the ripcord and announces colorblindness for all by legal fiat, but deeming race irrelevant in law does not make it so in life. And having so detached itself from this country's actual past and present experiences, the court has now been lured into interfering with the crucial work that UNC and other institutions of higher learning are doing to solve America's real world problems. No one benefits from ignorance 
Although formal race-linked legal barriers are gone, race still matters to the lived experiences of all Americans in innumerable ways, and today's ruling makes things worse, not better. The best that can be said of the majority's perspective is that it proceeds ostrich-like from the hope that preventing consideration of race will end racism. To quote Ketanji Brown Jackson, essentially, the real ignorant ones here are the six Supreme Court justices who just ruled against this and said, it's unconstitutional. It's illegal. They're being ignorant. No, 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 not quite. Not quite. But what did Clarence Thomas have to say? A black man, but much more than a black man, how pandering, how demeaning would it be if that were always our lead in with a white Supreme Court justice. He's a white man. And he had something brilliant to say. Ooh, shouldn't surprise us at all. We're fish in water who don't realize we're wet, so many of us, with how much this stuff has seeped into our thinking and reasoning and speaking about these things. Thomas wrote, quote, racialism simply cannot be undone by different or more racialism. Instead, the solution announced in the second founding is incorporated in our constitution that we are all equal and should be treated equally before the law without regard to our race. Only that promise can allow us to look past our differing skin colors and identities and see each other for what we truly are, individuals with unique thoughts, perspectives, and goals, but with equal dignity and equal rights under the law. Thomas then turned his focus to Jackson's view that America is a, quote, fundamentally racist society, end quote. Rather than focusing on individuals as individuals, her dissent focuses on the historical subjugation of black Americans invoking statistical racial gaps to argue in favor of defining and categorizing individuals by their race. As she sees things, we are all inexorably trapped in a fundamentally racist society with the original sin of slavery and the historical subjugation of black Americans still determining our lives today. The panacea she counsels is to unquestioningly accede to the view of elite experts and reallocate society's riches by racial means as necessary to level the playing field, all as judged by racial metrics. I strongly disagree. First, as stated above, any statistical gaps between the average wealth of black and white Americans is constitutionally irrelevant. I, of course, agree that our society is not and has never been colorblind. Post at 2, Jackson J. dissenting. See also Plessy, 163 U.S. at 559, Harlan J. dissenting. People discriminate against one another for a whole host of reasons, but under the 14th Amendment, the law must disregard all racial distinctions. Quote, in view of the Constitution, in the eye of the law, there is in this country no superior, dominant, ruling class of citizens. There is no caste here. Our Constitution is colorblind and neither knows nor tolerates classes among citizens. In respect of civil rights, all citizens are equal before the law. The humblest is the peer of the most powerful. The law regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or of his color when his civil rights 
as guaranteed by the supreme law of the land, are involved. Thomas noted that with the passage of the 14th Amendment, quote, the people of our nation proclaimed that the law may not sort citizens based on race. It is this principle that the framers of the 14th Amendment adopted in the wake of the Civil War to fulfill the promise of equality under the law, and it is this principle that has guaranteed a nation of equal citizens the privileges or immunities of citizenship and the equal protection of the laws, end quote. Quote, yet Justice Jackson would replace the second founder's vision with an organizing principle based on race. In fact, on her view, almost all of life's outcomes may be unhesitatingly ascribed to race. This is so, she writes, because of statistical disparities among different racial groups. Even if some whites have a lower household net worth than some blacks, what matters to Justice Jackson is that the average white household has more wealth than the average black household. This lore is not and has never been true. Even in the segregated South where I grew up, individuals were not the sum of their skin color. Then as now, not all disparities are based on race, not all people are racist, and not all differences between individuals are ascribable to race. Put simply, the fate of abstract categories of wealth statistics is not the same as the fate of a given set of flesh and blood human beings. Thomas Sowell, Wealth, Poverty, and Politics, 333, 2016. Worse still, Justice Jackson uses her broad observations about statistical relationships between race and select measures of health, wealth, and well-being to label all blacks as victims. Her desire to do so is unfathomable to me. I cannot deny the great accomplishments of black Americans, including those who succeeded despite long odds, nor do Justice Jackson's statistics regarding a correlation between levels of wealth and health and well-being between selected racial groups prove anything. Of course, none of those statistics are capable of drawing a direct causal link between race rather than socioeconomic status or any other factor and individual outcomes. So Justice Jackson supplies the link herself, the legacy of slavery and the nature of inherited wealth. This, she claims, locks blacks into a seemingly perpetual inferior caste. Such a view is irrational. It is an insult to individual achievement and cancerous to young minds seeking to push through barriers rather than consign themselves to permanent victimhood. If an applicant has less financial means because of generational inheritance or otherwise, then surely a university may take that into account. If an applicant has medical struggles or a family member with medical concerns, a university may consider that too. What it cannot do is use the applicant's skin color as a heuristic. Assuming that because the applicant checks the box for black, he therefore conforms to the university's monolithic and reductionist view of an abstract average black person. Accordingly, Justice Jackson's race-infused worldview falls flat at each step. Individuals are the sum of their unique experiences, challenges, and accomplishments. What matters is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And their race is not to blame for everything, good or bad, that happens in their lives. A contrary myopic worldview based on individual skin color to the total exclusion of their personal choices is nothing short of racial determinism. Justice Jackson then builds from her faulty premise to call for action, arguing that courts should defer to experts and allow institutions to discriminate on the basis of race. Make no mistake, her dissent is not a vanguard of the innocent and helpless. It is instead a call to empower privileged elites who will, quote, tell us what is required to level the playing field, end quote, among castes and classifications 
that they alone can divine. Then, after siloing us all into racial castes and pitting those castes against each other, the descent somehow believes that we will be able, at some undefined point, to, quote, march forward together, end quote, into some utopian vision. Social movements that invoke these sorts of rallying cries historically have ended disastrously. Unsurprisingly, this tried and failed system defies both law and reason. Start with the obvious. If social reorganization in the name of equality may be justified by the mere fact of statistical disparities among racial groups, then that reorganization must continue until these disparities are fully eliminated, regardless of the reasons for the disparities and the cost of their elimination. If blacks fail a test at higher rates than their white counterparts, regardless of whether the reason for the disparity has anything at all to do with the race, the only solution will be race-focused measures. If those measures were to result in blacks failing at yet higher rates, the only solution would be to double down. In fact, there would seem to be no logical limit to what the government may do to level the racial playing field. Outright wealth transfers, quota systems, and racial preferences would all seem permissible. In such a system, it would not matter how many innocents suffer race-based injuries. All that would matter is reaching the race-based goal. Worse... The classifications that Justice Jackson draws are themselves race-based stereotypes. She focuses on two hypothetical applicants, John and James, competing for admission to UNC. John is a white seventh-generation legacy at the school, while James is black and would be the first in his family to attend UNC. Justice Jackson argues that race-conscious admission programs are necessary to adequately compare the two applicants. As an initial matter, it is not clear why James's race is the only factor that could encourage UNC to admit him. His status as a first-generation college applicant seems to contextualize his application. But setting that aside, why is it that John should be judged based on the actions of his great-great-great-grandparents? And what would Justice Jackson say to John when deeming him not as worthy of admission? Some statistically significant number of white people had advantages in college admissions seven generations ago, and you have inherited their incurable sin? While articulating her black and white world literally, Justice Jackson ignores the experiences of other immigrant groups and white communities that have faced historic barriers. Though Justice Jackson seems to think that her race-based theory can somehow benefit everyone, it is an immutable fact that Quote, every time the government uses racial criteria to bring the races together, someone gets excluded and the person excluded suffers an injury solely because of his or her race, end quote. Indeed, Justice Jackson seems to have no response, no explanation at all for the people who will shoulder that burden. How, for example, would Justice Jackson explain the need for race-based preferences to the Chinese student who has worked hard his whole life only to be denied college admission in part because of his skin color? If such a burden would seem difficult to impose on a bright-eyed young person, that's because it should be. History has taught us to abhor theories that call for elites to pick racial winners and losers in the name of sociological experimentation. Nor is it clear what another few generations of race-conscious college admissions may be expected to accomplish. Even today, affirmative action programs that offer an admissions boost to black and Hispanic students discriminate against those who identify themselves as members of other races that do not receive such preferential treatment. End quote. For some reaction from President Biden to all of this, I'll play for you cut one here in this podcast episode. 
from NBC News tweeting out as embedded in the post over at Not to Be from Not to Be staff. Here it is. Cut one. Take a listen. And just for good measure, while we're at it, we'll play cut two. Also, Biden responding to the Supreme Court ruling. The court has effectively ended affirmative action in college admissions. And I strongly, strongly disagree with the court's decision. Because affirmative action is so misunderstood, I want to be clear, make sure everybody's clear about what the law has been and what it has not been until today. Many people wrongly believe that affirmative action allows unqualified students, unqualified students to be admitted ahead of qualified students. This is not, this is not how college admissions work. Rather, colleges set out standards for admission, and every student, every student has to meet those standards. Then and only then, after first meeting the qualifications required by the school, do colleges look at other factors in addition to their grades, such as race. Ah, but... (laughs) But are they taking a look at two students who have identical GPA, identical test scores, identical extracurricular activities? Are they taking a look at two identical students, according to the metrics, and then saying the tiebreaker is, well, this one's black and the other one's Asian. So we're going to go with the black student because we want more black accomplishment higher black incomes in the U.S. At that moment, it becomes racist. If all things being equal, you have two applicants and you always pick the white applicant to hire, isn't that regarded by the left as racist? Isn't that racist? Isn't that racially preferential? Surely there are other distinctions that you can look at besides ethnicity, besides skin color. Surely there are other considerations that you can look at. You're not going to have two identical people put aside race, two people who are white, who have identical test scores, identical GPAs, identical extracurricular activities and accomplishments. They're going to have some difference, some distinction that you can look at and you can say, hey, you know what? Personality wise, we like this guy better. We think he is more likely to be a net benefit to our school or society. We interviewed both, and this one has a really great heart. And this other one, yeah, he got great scores, but he's kind of a jerk, kind of an arrogant SOB. But then even there, if that becomes a backdoor for saying, hey, we don't like the personality of certain races, what is that, right? If personality tests have been the excuse for excluding Asian American students, even if they've got perfect scores, great extracurricular activities that they can tout to prove that they are a well-rounded person holistically. If you say, oh, we don't like their personality, is it actually their personality or is it the fact that they're Asian Americans? If race is so irrelevant in the admissions process, then why is the left so upset about affirmative action being struck down and thrown out? If it has not been that big of a deal, why are they so upset? And also, oh, by the way, you have to 
appreciate the reporter, or I should say propagandist, asking the question, not journalist, activist, asking the question of the president as he's leaving the room, whether the Supreme Court has gone rogue. Why are they asking that? To set up, trying to pack the court, or trying to impeach Supreme Court justices, trying to remove them from the bench so that the left can go back to getting the outcomes that they want, so they can keep on getting legal plunder, as Bastiat would say. The corporate media is trying to set up the pretext for leftists leaving suspicious packages right outside the Supreme Court, or showing up at Supreme Court justices' homes and threatening them and their families. But again, if this has not been that big of a deal, what they're doing, then why is the left so upset? Why does the corporate news media, the propaganda arm of the left, want to characterize these six Supreme Court justices as having gone rogue? No, it's not the Supreme Court justices who have gone rogue. It's the left that has gone rogue. And just because they've been running with that ball in a lawless way for years or decades, that doesn't mean that they suddenly represent law and order and the conservatives on the Supreme Court are the revolutionaries. No, no, that's just backwards. It's like the Bolsheviks calling themselves the Bolsheviks, which is Russian for majority. They weren't the majority. They were a very ruthless and manipulative minority that aspired to dominating the majority. That's what the name Bolshevik meant. That's what it was about. So also, this is propaganda here. And Biden saying this is not a normal court No, actually, this is a very normal court relative the Constitution. This is a very normal court relative our country's founding principles. And no, don't take that and twist it into yet another diatribe against America as an inherently fundamentally racist country, because all that is is another socialist scheme. It's not a new idea. It's not original. It's another socialist scheme to try and excuse legal plunder. No, this is a normal court. This is how the laws are supposed to work. This is how a equal application of the laws, equal protection of the laws is supposed to work if you are actually trying to protect people from being discriminated against on the basis of their race or discriminated for, because that's exactly what Clarence Thomas was getting at. If you discriminate in favor of certain races, you are by extension discriminating against other races. And if you say you're against that, well then, what's your argument? You have no you have no argument. If only the elites, if only the academic elites actually really understand how this all works, well maybe that's proof that it's not true. And this is just the arbitrary exercise of raw power. This is just the ambitions of revolutionaries to take what doesn't belong to them and of course, keep their own cut in the name of the people while they shepherd the revolution into its ultimate fruition, utopia, which by the way, is nowhere. That's what the word utopia means. It means nowhere, no place. It doesn't exist. Don't buy it. Don't get suckered into believing this. It's not true what the corporate news media is trying to spin this as. It's not true what Joe Biden is saying. For something of a proof of that, I'll play for you a bit of audio of Berkeley Law School Dean Erwin Chemerinsky explaining 
how you can secretly, quietly enact a policy of racial discrimination in faculty hiring, which is illegal, by the way, in the state of California. This is some hidden camera stuff from one of the students, it would appear. But here it is. One minute. Thanks to Harris Rigby for embedding the tweet from Christopher F. Rufo. Take a listen. Here's cut three. And then I'll have some thoughts for you. What I mean by unstated affirmative action is what if the college or university doesn't tell anybody, doesn't make any public statements, but still wants to. I'll give you an example from our law school. But if ever I'm deposed, I'm going to deny I said this to you. Um, When we do faculty hiring, we're quite conscious that diversity is important to us. And we say diversity is important. It's fine to say that. But I'm very careful when we have a faculty appointments committee meeting. Anytime somebody says, you know, we should really prefer this candidate or this candidate because this person would add diversity, don't say that. You can think it. You can vote it. But our discussions are not privileged. So don't ever articulate that that's what you're doing. Well, that works more easily with regard to faculty hiring. With regard to student admissions, it becomes more difficult because it's a statistical measure. Okay. So, again, just to recap, this guy is the dean of the law school at Berkeley in California, where this is illegal. What he's describing them doing behind the scenes is illegal. If they're doing it, and you just can't say it, right? You just can't say it, but you can think it. You can have that be your private reason. You just can't say it. He's admitting that they do this all the time, and it's easier with faculty, he says. It's easier to do with faculty, but even there, you can't you can't say that you're hiring this person because you want more diversity, racial in nature, in your faculty. It's easier to do with faculty than it is with students, but that is to say, too, that they do it with regards to their student body, who they enroll, who they accept, who they admit. They do it with regards to who gets to attend Berkeley Law or Berkeley in general. He says you can't say it because it's actually against the law. So this is the law school, ladies and gentlemen. This is the school that is churning out the lawyers who are then going to wage lawfare in many cases when they're of the left, when they're radical leftists, they're going to wage lawfare against conservative ideas, conservative principles. But it's also the faculty. It's the teachers. They hire based on racial diversity, which is to say they discriminate against certain people, certain teachers who are otherwise eminently qualified if those teachers are of a certain ethnic background. As Clarence Thomas pointed out, if you prefer certain students, you are therefore discriminating against other students on the basis of on the basis of that metric. And by the way, discrimination happens. It just can't happen. It has to happen on some lines, but it can't happen on the basis of race. Otherwise, what you're advocating is racism. And insofar as these are the elites that are driving this kind of discrimination, they are the inheritors of the legacy of the eugenicists from a century and more ago. These social engineers are the direct descendants intellectually of the eugenicists who want to decide ultimately, and they try and deal with it upstream in various nudge theory sorts of ways, but they try to decide upstream who is ultimately going to propagate 
ideas in society, who's going to occupy positions of power and authority, and therefore who is going to, in some sense, reproduce after themselves. If you want to discriminate on the basis of GPA, on the basis of test scores, that's fine. If you want to discriminate on the basis of whether somebody is in their extracurricular activities presenting themselves to be a well-rounded, holistically successful, robust, good example, that's fine. But if your idea of discrimination factors in the race of the person and you weight that heavily in comparison to their professional achievements, their academic achievements, their personal achievements, their character, you are the racist. You are the racist. The Babylon Bee has a brilliant piece on this too, though, titled Harvard to get around affirmative action ban by asking you whether you prefer barbecue, ranch, or soy sauce. (laughs) Admissions faculty at Harvard was devastated today upon hearing the news that they could no longer use racial discrimination to turn their school into a diverse rainbow of beautiful mediocrity. Their spirits were raised, however, once they realized they could accomplish the same thing by asking prospective students whether they prefer barbecue, ranch dressing, or soy sauce. Quote, we really want to avoid too many um, soy sauce lovers here at Harvard, said Alta Mauro, Harvard's associate dean for inclusion and belonging. Quote, they're kind of boring because they study all the time, which is lame, but you need a few of them on campus because sometimes you can pay them to do your homework for you. End quote. Sources with Harvard faculty also reiterated that ranch dressing appreciators are dangerous, disgusting people who have no business learning at a progressive and inclusive place like Harvard. Quote, what we really want are more barbecue sauce lovers here at Harvard, said Morrow. Quote, they give our campus a um, colorful feel. They bring with them a wonderful... Um, unique cultural flavor to student life, uh, unless they're white. White people suck. I hope white people die, end quote. <laughs> uh, you got to laugh. You got to laugh or else you'll cry. Last but not least, though, this will be the final article on this topic for this podcast episode, and then I'll let you go. Analysis. SCOTUS' decision on affirmative action will spark more lawsuits, experts say. Lawrence Wilson reports for the Epoch Times, publishing just yesterday this piece. As he points out, this is a step backwards, what the 6-3 decision in Fair Admissions, Inc. v. President and Fellows of Harvard College has ruled is a step backward, according to critics. Quote, the Supreme Court's ruling on affirmative action programs is a historic civil rights setback. Domingo Garcia, president of the League of United Latin American Citizens, wrote in a June 29th statement, quote, this decision could make it significantly more difficult for minorities, particularly low-income first-generation Latino and Dreamer students, to enter higher education institutions. It puts them at an immense disadvantage and perpetuates societal inequality and injustice, end quote. Others heralded the court's decision as a return to the original intention of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, which guarantees equal protection under the law for all citizens, regardless of race. Quote, the Supreme Court firmly rejected the practice of using race as a factor in university admissions, 
William Jacobson, founder of EqualProtect.org and professor of law at Cornell University, told the Epoch Times, quote, each individual is entitled to be considered for his or her inherent worth and talents and race cannot play a role in that evaluation, end quote. Skipping on down, I want to talk about the third section here with the heading, Solving the Deeper Problem. With affirmative action no longer an option, proponents of the decision believe colleges, along with other institutions, will be forced to try more effective solutions to the problem of academic underachievement by minorities. The societal question, according to Canaparo, is, quote, what is the cause of persistent racial disparities and what is the cure, end quote. He and others believe the cause of the disparity is more comprehensive than individual or societal racism. Therefore, the cure must be something beyond tipping the scale in favor of one race or another. Quote, that is wrong as a matter of morality, and it's wrong. As a matter of fact, that is not how discrimination is cured. That is not how disparities are cured. The remedy can't be the same as the disease, Kenaparo said. Affirmative action has not worked, according to Wilfred Riley, assistant professor of political science at Kentucky State University, quote, by the time you get to college, it's too late, Riley said during the FAIR forum, quote, we're using the wrong tool to remedy other social ills. Nobody's saying that everything's hunky-dory and we live in a utopia, whether it's K-12 education or family formation or issues with criminal justice or anything else, affirmative action is not the right tool to fix those problems. Quote, admitting more mediocre kids of black doctors is not going to remedy the ills of the underclass. Quote, we should be thinking about incentives and policies that will make sense for education at an early level, the family formation. Chin said, reducing achievement standards has the opposite effect, she said. All children should be held to high standards. Now, let me just suggest to you, let me suggest for you that this is why we homeschool. And when I say that, what I mean is not that if you homeschool, your kid can get into Harvard and therefore you should homeschool. But if your kid won't get into Harvard, then you shouldn't homeschool. Or if your kid doesn't want to go to Harvard, then you shouldn't homeschool. That's not what I'm saying. But what I would say, and I stand by this and I believe this with all my heart, what I am saying is we should be encouraging more young people to get married and to stay married, to get married as young as is practical and to make it more practical for younger people to get married earlier and to stay married. The welfare system that LBJ helped to institute, the Great Society programs, need to be abolished. We need to deregulate and lower taxes and therefore foster economic growth, bring jobs back to the U.S. that have been driven overseas by excessive regulation and high taxes, and we need school choice. School choice in the form of the equivalent in tax dollars for what the state you live in spends per student in a public education, public school environment, that money should go with the child wherever the child is going to get their education. If that child is going to go to a private school or a trade school, if they're going to be homeschooled, the money that would be going to the local public school that they would be attending otherwise should follow that child. And you know what? You, you know what you'll get if you do that? You'll get more young families with moms who can afford to stay home and raise their children 
and teach their children and homeschool their children so that their children end up holistically well-rounded, enthusiastic, well-disciplined, curious, critical thinkers, contributors to their communities. You do that, and whatever happens to the public schools in the short term, they will have to, if they want to survive, if they want to keep the doors open, they will have to reform. They will have to figure out what the private schools, what the trade schools, what the homeschoolers are doing that's working, and they will have to adopt what is working in places where supposedly there is no other choice that's affordable besides public schools. Tell me what the interest of the government is that would preclude, that would insist on something to the contrary. What is the interest of the government in education? Well, supposedly the interest is that American children learn to read and write and do math and they know their history and they know how to be good citizens. And by good citizens, we shouldn't accept the progressive ideal of what a good citizen is, the socialist ideal of what a good citizen is. The interest of the government is in having citizens who are moral and upright and who do what is good and they don't do what is evil. The interest of the government is in having a nation that is able to protect itself from foreign aggressors and is able to be blessed and enjoy the fruits of its own labors. That's the interest of the government in relation to education, if you can even say that much. But I would say if some people will demand that the government be involved and be extracting wealth from the economy, from men and women and businesses in the country, in the nation, if some will insist that that must keep up, that must continue, that must persist, then I say, okay, take that money and put it in the hands of the parents. And then local school boards will have to respect the parents because that mom and dad who's got two or three kids in the school system, if they decide they're out because the teachers are not responsive, the administration is not listening to them, they're not being treated with respect, their child is not being taken care of, their child is not being taught properly. If those parents who have two or three kids in the schools say, you know what, we're thinking about homeschooling our kids next year, the school administrators are going to be thinking to themselves, that's potentially $30,000 less that our district will have. What will it take to keep these kids here? What will it take... How can we convince them? How can we serve them better to where this is the best place for their child? And if we would say, here's the long and short of it. If we would say, we're terrified that parents who have the choice are going to take their kids somewhere else and the public schools are going to lose funding, are we not tacitly admitting that the public schools are not the best place for a child to get an education? If the complaint from minority communities in the U.S., is that this or that local school that they send their kids to is not providing a good quality education. The solution is way upstream of admission standards at Harvard or UNC or Berkeley. The solution is get those young K through 12 kids a better education that they're going, they're going to actually want to have. They're going to actually benefit from. They're going to see as appealing. Instead of incentivizing the breakup of the nuclear family, the breakup of husbands and wives because welfare would pay better, would give them more. Instead of incentivizing fatherlessness and divorce, 
or young women just not even getting married in the first place. Welfare queens. Instead of us incentivizing welfare queens, how about you abolish the whole world, the whole welfare system as we know it, the whole Great Society program. It's failed. It's done a tremendous amount of damage. It's created dependency and poverty and misery. It's been corrosive on the character of the average American. It's been a major point of contention. Abolish the Great Society programs and replace them with tax breaks for parents who stay together and who can't who have kids offer tax breaks on the condition that the mom and the dad are married when the child is born and stay together offer tax incentives for marriage and for having children in the context of marriage and make the tax dollars follow those children wherever their parents believe they can get the best education. You do that and you don't need affirmative action. You do that and everybody wins, except the malefactors, except the parasitic, educrat social engineers, except the socialists who love legal plunder, even at the expense of little children, innocent men and women who are naive and they're simple and they just do whatever the people around them are doing. And that's what we call culture. They say, oh, well, so-and-so is doing it. And, uh, I think that's what I'm going to do next. I think that's what I'm going to do too. This isn't working out. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be examining what incentives we have in place for bad behavior and for those family conditions that statistically we know again and again lead to high crime and homelessness and poverty, low academic performance, unhappiness, mental illness, substance abuse. How is all of that being actually incentivized with our current programs? And how could we incentivize what is more productive? Don't give more money to kids who come from minority communities. Don't give less money to kids who come from Asian American communities or white American communities. Make it even. Make it absolutely even across the board. The money is going to follow these students based on what the average cost is per student in the public schools. And then also too, what you'll probably have is you will probably have tuition rates in the private schools come down as they start doing the math and they say, hey, you know what? There are more parents we can appeal to, we can attract by innovating here by listening to and serving those families well, there are more kids we can attract if we lower our tuition rate to what is normative for a public school student in our state. And so what, what I think you'll see is if it goes that direction, if we can do that, if that can be accomplished, what you'll see is the multiplication of innovative, creative, holistic educational alternatives that serve these students better. You'll see an empowerment of parents, you'll see parents more engaged as a result, but we can't stop there. You also should, if you want to be consistent, if you want to be comprehensive on this, you also should incentivize and offer tax breaks for married couples who do it right, who do this the right way. Instead of incentivizing having children out of wedlock and then remaining unmarried, incentivize what is good. That's what Romans 13 says that the governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do what is good, not those who 
get locked into a perpetual victimhood mentality. No, no. Reward those who do what is good, and you will get more people doing what is good. Punish those who do what is evil, and you will get fewer people doing what is evil. That's how it's supposed to work. So in sum, in conclusion, this decision from the Supreme Court this week is fantastic. It's excellent. It's very, very good. It can't be the end. The left is not going to let it go, but neither should conservatives. Keep on keeping on, and let's build this out to where we get equality of opportunity and we reward those who do what is good, and you will get actually much better outcomes across the board. And we should all be in favor of that. I want Black American, Latino American, Asian American, White American, Native American families to do well. And I strongly believe this is how we accomplish that. If those families are doing well, my family is doing better. If my family is doing better, those families are also benefiting. We all will be doing better if we enact what it is that I'm proposing. Future generations will thank us. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, provided the world stands, provided the Lord has that in view. And this is why we homeschool. And this is why I wrote the book. And this is why we homeschool. Go buy a copy today. Over the summer, you can read it. It's not a long book, but it's a good book if I do say so myself. I worked on it until it was good. Published it the very last day of 2020, which is poetic. Just perfect, really. Couldn't have timed it better, I don't think. Go buy a copy today. Get it on e-reader or in paperback. Be persuaded. Buy it for somebody you know who is thinking about homeschooling this coming school year. Let's do this. Let's do this for future generations and for ourselves and for our countrymen. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.